Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So tonight we're going to start with a mystery in our own backyard of space. There is a gigantic impact crater on the dark side of the moon. Now, of course, we know a lot less about the dark side of the moon uh, than we do about the side that we can see and that we've sent people to and things like that. Um, And so this hole measures some 1,550 miles wide and is eight miles deep. It's big. It actually represents one of the solar system's largest impact craters. The South Pole Aitken Basin is also the oldest and deepest crater on the moon. Now, the prevailing theory for how this crater was formed was a head-on collision with a very large, very fast meteor. This sort of event would have ripped the moon's crust apart and scattered chunks of the moon's mantle across the crater's surface, which would allow researchers a rare glimpse of the interior of the the celestial body. Using data from China's U-2-2 rover, U-2-2, which settled on the bottom of the crater aboard the Chang'e 4 lander back in January of 2019, researchers discovered traces of minerals that suggest they'd originated in the moon's mantle. However, a new study published August 19th in the journal Geophysical Research Letters has brought up questions about whether this analysis is actually correct. Having analyzed six plots of soil from the bottom of the basin, the team of researchers argue that the composition is that of crust material, not mantle. We are not seeing the mantle material at the landing site as expected, study co-author Hao Zhang, a planetary scientist at the China University of Geosciences, said in a statement. Now, the researchers used a technique called reflection spectroscopy to determine the presence of specific minerals in the lunar soil based on how individual grains reflected visible and near-infrared light. The U-2-2 rover traveled 175 feet away from the lander in order to collect six samples in two days following the lander's arrival in the crater. And then using a database that identifies lunar materials based on properties such as size, reflectance, and degradation due to solar wind, the team was able to estimate the mineral concentrations at each spot. What they found was an abundance of the crystalline rock plagioclase. It amounted to 56 to 72 percent of the crater's composition. Formed by the cooling of early oceans of lava, it is common both on the cru- in the crust of the Earth and on the Moon, but it is less abundant in the mantle. 
they did discover some materials more abundant in the moon's mantle, such as olivine. However, the concentrations were not such that they suggest actual mantle remains in the crater. This, in turn, suggests that researchers need to go back to the drawing board for their hypothesis of the origin of this incredible impact crater. Now, some work actually had already been done in this area, with a 2012 paper published in the journal Science suggesting a slightly slower-moving meteor could have struck at an angle of around 30 degrees. This would have created a crater, but not disturbed the mantle. Of course, this one is based solely on simulations. It's kind of hard to recreate giant impact craters um, on Earth, though there are some really cool places where they do it. Um, there's some places that have basically humongous um, air compressor guns that are able to uh, recreate kind of impact craters. Um, and yeah, watching videos of those is really, really cool. You have to watch the, the super slow motion version of it. And so there are uh, scientists who do that, who uh, spend their time basically crashing tiny rocks into other tiny rocks to stimulate how that might happen on much grander scales. Now, uh, more research will obviously need to be conducted. And actually, a lot more research needs to be conducted on the far side of the moon, uh, because we really don't know as much about it as we do the other side. And it is substantially different. Um, obviously, it's the same celestial body, so it's not that different. But there are some real differences uh, between the side that we see and the side that is uh, tidally locked away from us. So again, um, there is one side that we see and the other side we are never able to glimpse, at least from the Earth itself, because of the tidal locked um, orbits. And so definitely need to figure out exactly how such a huge impact was sustained and what happened to it, because um, as we uh, have noted over the years and many terrible Hollywood movies have been made about uh, the uh, possibility of a giant meteor impact is a reality. Um, and actually, I read, I think, the other day that someone at NASA is finally starting to think, maybe we really, really should actually have a task force on this. Um, because every once in a while, something comes by us that's real close uh, in an astronomical sense that nobody noticed until it was pretty much on top of us. So um, there's a whole uh, kind of dichotomy between the idea of being able to see things that are really far away, but also then sometimes having really hard trouble seeing things that are way closer uh, in astronomy. It's a, it's just, there's a weird kind of uh, dip in the ability to uh, sort of figure out where things are. And especially the problem is, is that a lot of these objects are dark. And so we can look deep into uh, space, into the, into the um, universe, and see these amazing, beautiful supernova and red giants that are like a hundred times bigger than the sun, um, probably more than that. That's just off the top of my head. Um, 
And, you know, they're pumping out a lot of light. So we see that light. The problem with a lot of these asteroids is that uh, they don't show off a little, a lot of light. A lot of them are very dark. Uh, They're not particularly uh, luminous, even when they are being illuminated directly by um, the sun. And so they're much harder to see. So it would be a really great thing to uh, put some people on that because as much as uh, that was kind of a joke a couple of years ago, um, there is the distinct possibility it has happened and it will uh, almost certainly happen again if we don't come up with some sort of crazy uh, way of avoiding it that a giant impact crater Uh, will form again on the earth and it will be bad news for much of what is living on the planet at that time. Okay, that was a fun topic. (laughs) I promise nothing's going to happen in the next, you know, probably decade or so. They, they're reasonably certain that they that they've gotten a pretty good handle on what's out there at the moment. So uh, the, the chances of you being killed by giant meteor are still astronomically small. Um, so anyways, let's talk about uh, actually a uh, fundamental question of physics. Let us stick with kind of physics and astronomy here. And so this is one of the quintessential questions in physics. It is the thing that keeps physicists up at night. Um, It is the thing that a lot of people say, well, you clearly don't understand because you don't know why this is. Uh, So physics is all just, you know, hooey. And so that is the question of where is all the antimatter? Now, I'm almost certain that you've heard about this, that our universe has a very unnerving lack of antimatter. Now, it's not unnerving because we want to have antimatter around. That would actually be literally catastrophic, uh, as the energy produced when matter and antimatter collide is huge. They actually annihilate each other, and the amount of energy released in that annihilation is off the charts. The big problem is that we have no idea why we live in a universe that is filled with matter, but very little antimatter. Now, we know that when subatomic particles interact, both matter and antimatter are produced in equal measure. However, soon after the beginning of the universe, almost all of the antimatter in the system disappeared. Now, the baryon asymmetry problem, uh, one of the names given for this puzzle, again, has long haunted the minds of theoretical physicists. It literally does keep people up at night. Um, And so a trio of theorists has now proposed that a trio of particles uh, referred to as the Higgs boson, yes, those Higgs bosons that we uh, were looking for for so long, Uh, we found the one, but we'll talk about the other two uh, in just a minute, that these bosons um, might be the key to the lost antimatter. And more importantly, from a scientific perspective, they think they actually know how they might prove it. Um, So that's something that I've talked about uh, when we talk about physics stories from time to time, is the fact that there is legitimate arguments made that theoretical physics 
physics is not technically science um, because a lot of theoretical physics cannot be measured uh, in laboratories or in real world effects. And so uh, part of the kind of foundational thing about science is that you have to be able to test it. And if you can't test your theoretical physics beyond making beautiful mathematical designs um, and formulas that are very pretty and make a lot of sense internally, that's not really enough that uh, we need to be able to actually prove it in a way that is reproducible, that is based in actual day-to-day reality. Um, And so we need to be able to see the results from a collider or something like that. And so they think they can actually prove this. And so we know that the antimatter disappeared from the universe very early because it left no signature in the fabric of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is, of course, the heat left over from the original Big Bang. Um, I've talked about that before. It's something that we finally discovered. Uh, It was actually kind of discovered by accident. Uh, Someone had a big um, dish that they were using as a microwave as a radio telescope. And they kept getting this weird static and they couldn't figure out what the heck the static was. And they thought that it was pigeons uh, actually using the dish as their, um, you know, nest and and a place where they uh, were roosting. And so they cleaned out all the, all the um, pigeons and they still had the static. They couldn't figure out what the heck it was. And then they figured it out that it was actually, they were actually hearing the background radiation that is left over from the original Big Bang. Um, and of course, we can talk about the Big Bang. I've talked about the idea of the Big Bang, that, that that's a misnomer. And um, conceptually, it's hard to conceive of. So Big Bang is just as good as anything else. Um, but it, there was an expansion. So, uh, but there was no, um, it wasn't like an explosion. Uh, anyways, <laughs> like I said, it's easier to just conceptualize it as a bang, uh, as the Big Bang, sort of a, just a from a singularity, because otherwise it's it's hard to explain, uh, <laughs> especially within you know a few minutes. And so, anyways, this means fairly intuitively that the antimatter winked out in the very first seconds after expansion which means basically it was there and then very quickly it winks out because the thing is, is that in order to create the universe we have, you need to have gotten rid of the antimatter. (laughs) And so luckily we see that signature that it was very quickly extinguished. So that sort of works with the math that we have for how the early universe was formed. And so during those first few moments of expansion, high energies caused the electromagnetic and weak nuclear force to combine into a force we call the electroweak. Once the universe began to cool, however, the two forces reverted to being separate. At even higher energies, we believe that the strong nuclear force merged with the electroweak, and at even higher energies, gravity would also be joined, creating the ever sought after single unified force in the early microseconds of the universe. Now, the Higgs bosons do the work of splitting the electromagnetic force from the weak nuclear force at that time. But again, we know that the split between matter and antimatter happened before the forces separated. The Higgs boson itself couldn't have done that heavy lifting. 
There's no known mechanism that researchers can find for the particle to be solely responsible for the imbalance between matter and antimatter. However, the researchers believe that there is another or more than one, two uh, Higgs bosons out there that might have been able to have had an effect. In one experiment, a single Higgs boson was found to have a mass of around 125 billion electron volts, or GeV. In contrast, a proton weighs around 1 GeV. So these are extremely heavy particles for um, fundamental particles. Now, we currently don't have the ability to create high enough energy fields to activate such heavy bosons, bosons, um, but the researchers have proposed a mechanism for how such heavy Higgs bosons could have created the imbalance that led to the universe existing in its current form. In order to achieve this theoretically, the researchers proposed not one, but three different types of Higgs bosons, which they call the Higgs troika. Um, with the known Higgs boson being added to the other two particles with masses around 1000 GeV. This would have allowed for a way to create an imbalance as particles of matter and antimatter collided and annihilated themselves. If there was an imbalance in the stream of matter towards antimatter, the antimatter might have been swamped by that matter and thus more matter would be left to create the world that we know today. Now, the 1000 uh, GeV weight is currently arbitrary, but was chosen because they think that that is within reach of the next generation of colliders that we will create. And again, in order to have the theory be scientific, it needs to be testable. So if the particles would need to be larger than we can detect, the theory will again become unprovable and will just be an elegant solution that doesn't actually have any scientific weight, unfortunately. Now, of course, the mechanism would have to have worked incredibly fast uh, with a billion particles of matter for every one antimatter particle uh, having survived. And so in order to create the known quantities that we have in the current universe. And again, all of our math says that you have to have gotten rid of them very fast, very quickly. Otherwise, everything else that we see in the current universe breaks down. If you have antimatter for any more than the first couple of seconds, um, you, you don't get the universe that we have. And so uh, the two new Higgs would decay in showers of particles at slightly different rates and with slightly different preferences for matter over antimatter. These differences would then cascade into enough matter being present over antimatter by the time the electroweak force split to continue to favor matter over antimatter. Now, of course, while this might solve the question of where all the antimatter is, it would leave a new question, <laughs> which is why did the universe require three different particles to create the imbalance? Uh, again, the idea is always Occam's razor, less is more. Um, and so if it needs to be three things, why does it need to be three things? Why isn't it just one thing? Um, and again, that's the whole idea of like, why do we have four forces? Why don't we only have one force? It's like at super, super, super high energies that are just completely beyond our ability to create, you do have one, um, but we don't have a way to get there um, as far as our 
math currently and also um, in the ability to kind of pull that into other things. Um, and of course, that is always the holy grail is uh, connecting uh, quantum physics to uh, Newtonian physics. But that's definitely something for another day. And of course, that always gets into my uh, conjecture that is um, just a thought experiment. It's much more uh, philosophical than scientific. But the idea is uh, how much of a system can a part of a system really truly understand. Um, but anyways, let's let's stop talking about physics because it's very, very uh, overwhelming sometimes. And let's talk about something completely different. Let's talk about Vikings. <laughs> More precisely, Viking warriors called berserkers, who were known for their ferocity in battle and were said to fight in a trance-like state of rage called berserkergang, which involved howling like wild animals, biting their shields, and often hitting anyone who was near, regardless of their affiliation. Now, we don't really know much about berserkers beyond what we can read in a few Old Norse myths and sagas. Many had believed that they may have ingested Amanita muscaria, a mushroom with psychoactive properties. Uh, and of course, that is the mushroom. It basically looks like the quintessential uh, toadstool, uh, the Alice in Wonderland type, uh, a red bell dotted with white and a white stem. However, a new paper in the journal Eth Ethnopharmacology suggests that henbane is a more likely culprit. Now, we first read about these warriors in a late 9th century poem written to honor King Harald Fairhair, and then uh, Snorri Sturluson, uh, who was writing in the 13th century, and really is the author who gave us most of what we know about Viking myths and legends. Uh, pretty much, if he was making things up, we're in trouble, um, because his works are the ones that are the most uh, well-known, the most uh, extant still. And so a lot of the things that we think that we know about Norse mythology are based on uh, Snorri Sturluson. Um, Sturluson. And so uh, he notes that Odin's berserkers were, quote, mad as dogs or wolves and strong as bears or wild oxen. And so they were thought to be able to kill a person with one blow and also a lot of more magical or mystical feats, such as being able to withstand edged weapons or fire, but somehow being susceptible to uh, killing by club. <laughs> Some myths suggest they could blunt the blades of enemies with a spell or turn the evil eye on them. But regardless, it is the blind rage that is the main characteristic of the berserker. The berserker gang was said to begin with bodily chills, shivering, and teeth chattering, which was followed by swelling and reddening of the face. After that, they would be ready to release their rage on the battlefield. Afterwards, they would experience both physical fatigue and emotional numbness for several days afterwards. Now, many ideas have been put forth for how this might have happened. Self-induced hysteria, epilepsy, ergot poisoning, even mental illness. But by and large, the most favored has been the ingestion of this hallucinogenic mushroom, um, Amanita muscaria, which is often known as fly agaric. And so while technically toxic, the mushroom can be ingested after being parboiled twice. 
and has been used by Siberian tribes as a popular intoxicant and uh, possibly as part of religious uh, ceremonies. Now, the mushroom contains ibotenic acid and musculum, muscimol, uh, which create a psychoactive response, and muscarine, which is responsible for some of the mushroom's more nasty side effects. When ingested, the mushroom causes a drunken state with auditory hallucinations and shifts in color vision. However, it can also induce vomiting, hypothermia, sweating, reddening of the face, twitching and trembling, dilated pupils, increased muscle tone, delirium, and seizures. (laughs) And so that would make a lot of sense to be the culprit for the berserker gun. However, Karsten Fatur, an ethnobotanist at the University of Lubanjlana in Slovenia, suggests that henbane, Hisusiamus niger, is a better candidate. It's been used since ancient Greece and has often been used in various cultures as a narcotic, a painkiller, a cure for insomnia, and as an anesthetic. It's actually used today uh, for motion sickness, and it can produce short-term memory loss. It can cause someone to lose consciousness for 24 hours, and in rare cases can lead to respiratory failure. Now, henbane even used to be a part of early European beers prior to the Bavarian purity law of 1516. Fritter argues that while both the mushroom and henbane are associated with many of the berserker symptoms, the mushroom is not associated with with rage, while several cases of angry behavior have been associated with plants related to henbane, which contain the same types of alkaloids. This anger effect can can range from agitation to full-blown rage and combativeness, depending on the dosage and the individual's mental set, he wrote. As this is perhaps the most defining component of the berserker state, this symptom is of central importance in identifying the potential cause, causes and provides a very critical reason as to why H. Niger is a more appropriate theoretical intoxicant for the berserkers than A. muscaria. Now, in addition, hen, henbane actually has several effects which seem to line up, again, more precisely. It can dull pain, thus making the person seem nearly invincible. It contributes to an inability to recognize faces, uh, which could cause people to basically attack whoever is in their line of sight. Um, it causes people to take off their clothes sometimes. So, um, you know, the warriors might have ripped off their clothes as part of their kind of um, rage. And it also lowers blood pressure, which might help account for the lack of blood that is said to have uh, flowed from injuries while they were in battle. And the lingering effects uh, also favor henbane. The mushroom generally doesn't involve lingering side effects, while henbane does, including headache, dilated pupils, and blurred vision. And as a final note, a. muscaria would have been much more rare in Scandinavia as it generally grows in forests in a symbiotic relationship with tree roots. Henbane, on the other hand, grows like a weed and is known to have flourished during the period. A woman's grave in Denmark from around 980 CE includes a pouch of henbane seeds. 
Now, of course, all of this is still speculation. Uh, we do not have enough archaeological evidence to prove either suggestion, but it is interesting to note that where the effects come so close to those found in the epics. All right, we are going to take a break and then we are going to come back and talk about cats so uh, and dogs for a second. Um, and so please do stay tuned. Hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. What could be more amazing than peak foliage season in Connecticut? Dropping a music festival right in the middle of it. The Black Bear Americana Music Festival is coming to the Goshen Fairgrounds October 11th, 12th, and 13th. Come for the day or camp out for the weekend. There's more than 40 bands on four stages. Amazing food, crafts, dancing, workshops, jam tents, and nationally touring acts that will simply blow your mind. Come to BlackBearMusicFest.com for more info. That's BlackBearMusicFest.com. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them 
until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. And we are back. Okay, so like I said, we are going to talk about dogs and cats, mostly cats. Now, I'm a cat owner. I love my cats. I have two, Punk and Poe. But just for everybody out there who's a dog person, I do absolutely love dogs as well. I love other people's dogs. Uh, Shout out to uh, Mr. Ziggy, uh, Wally and Pal, and all the other great dogs that are out there. Um, Honestly, I like most kind of animal, actually. But cats do hold a special place in my heart. So it comes as no surprise to me to learn that new research suggests that cats form social bonds with their owners in much the same way as dogs and human babies do. Kristen Vitale, a researcher at the Human-Animal Interaction Lab at Oregon State University and lead author of the new study published in Current Biology, sought to fill in the lack of research into the connection between cats and their owners. I think part of the reason for this paucity of research into cat-human interactions may stem from the idea that cats are not especially social animals, uh, Vitali noted. However, cats display a range of social behavior, and recent research indicates we may be underestimating the importance of social interaction in the lives of cats. And so one of the ways in which they sought to test cats' social feeling towards their owners was to look at their level of attachment. This is a commonly studied psychological trait. Now, there are several forms of attachment broken into two categories, either a secure attachment where someone is made happy by the presence of another and doesn't fear losing them, or an insecure attachment, and this can take several forms, including an insecure ambivalent attachment, wherein they try to keep the other as close as possible, or an insecure avoidant, in which they simply avoid getting close to anyone in the first place. Now, much research on attachment theory has been done with humans, but also with dogs and other non-human primates. The researchers decided to perform a trial previously tested on dogs on cats. And so they took a group of nearly 80 owners of kittens under the age of eight months and ran them through a trial. So for the trial, the owners sat with their cats for two minutes in an unfamiliar room. They then left for two minutes. And finally, they returned for another two minutes. According to attachment theory, being placed in unfamiliar surroundings while away from their owners should cause the cats stress if they are attached to their owners. They found that many cats were stressed out as judged by their vocalizations and other stressed out behaviors. Um, If you've ever heard a uh, kitten crying, uh, that's also a fun fact that uh, people don't usually know. Um, Many of you probably know it, though. Uh, Cats don't actually talk to each other very much. Um, Kittens will meow to their mothers, but uh, adult cats are pretty silent in the wild unless they're they're like tomcats fighting. Cats, 
vocalize specifically to humans for the most part. And those cries are pitched to fall right into the range of human babies. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, con- uh, you know, co-evolution. <laughs> Cats have been with us for a long time. And so they've evolved that ability based on uh, being our companions. So definitely cats are also uh, part of this evolutionary um, family with dogs as well. Uh, Family of animals that are connected to people. And so, yeah, they don't normally talk to one another. They only talk to us. Um, And so they found out, you know, many of the cats yelled and seemed very stressed out. Now, the final piece was to see how the cats reacted when the owners returned. Cats mainly reacted in one of three ways to the return of their owner, Vitelli said. Secure cats greet their owner and then return to relaxed play or exploration, known as the secure base effect. While insecure cats do not return to relaxed behavior and either excessively cling to their owner, insecure ambivalence, or avoid their owner insecure avoidance. Now, significantly, the cats fell into these different categories at rates similar to that of dogs and babies. Around two-thirds displayed a clear form of secure attachment with their owners, while less secure animals remaining remained clingy and stressed. Now, the researchers repeated the test six weeks later and also tested a different group of older cats all displayed the same attachment ratios. This suggests that cats bond with their owners just in ways that display differently from dogs. And of course, I can attest to that anecdotally. Punk will sit with me forever if I let him. Um, He loves to sit on top of me. Um, Poe is a little more reserved. He's a little more of the uh, reserved type. Uh, He has a very funny uh, mannerism where he'll sit on the back of the couch and put his paws on my shoulder while he purrs. Uh, Sometimes he will nestle his head against the back of my neck, but he will only do this for intervals of up to 10 minutes. Now he might do it several times in a night, but never for more than 10 minutes. So again, cats are just as interesting and have just as much personality and diversity as any dog. Um, And yes, that is a biased opinion, and we do try and be scientific around here, so I want to make sure that you are aware that it is a biased opinion, but every once in a while we have to, uh, (laughs) um, you know, talk about the things that we believe in, even if they may not be uh, provable in a laboratory. So, of course, the caveats are many. (laughs) We can't be sure that this behavior actually translates to the cats the way that we interpret it. Um, You know, there's always something else that might be going on in their head. Um, And in fact, nine cats in the study were actually unable to be classified by their attachment style. And the takeaway from this experiment isn't actually to measure how much cats like or dislike their human companions, and it can't answer the question of whether the the one-third of cats that were insecure don't have an otherwise beneficial relationship with their humans. The first step to answering those questions is more research. 
But what it does tell us is that the intrinsic attributes and traits that make puppies and babies become attached to owners or parents is not unique to those two, and that cats also join the ranks of those who form positive prosocial bonds with humans. And so this may also mean that other animals can do it. And again, we just haven't been looking that hard. Vitaly does suggest some guidelines for behavior that might signify that a cat is attached to their humans. Individual cats may show they like their owner in various ways. More social cats will show affection by rubbing on their owners or sitting on their laps, while more independent cats may show their affection by just being in the same room with their owner. There is a lot of variation in how cats display social behavior towards people, she said. Now, the next step for her team is to do more in-depth study of attachment with cats. They want to learn to what degree early social interactions can affect cats later in life, and if there are any ways in which cats that are antisocial can be taught more pro-social techniques later in life. Um, unfortunately, they did one small study with that and didn't have a lot of success. Uh, so hopefully they will find some other way to do that because this would be really helpful for foster and shelter cats uh, who need to be able to adjust to new owners, especially if they've been without an owner for some time. Okay, so let us move now to fish. And so let's talk actually about fish farming. Now, modern fish farming is a staple of global food production. About half of all the seafood consumed uh, is farmed rather than wild caught. And of course, this has both pros and cons. For instance, aquaculture is a lot less carbon intensive than raising beef, but fish farms still produce nutrients, excess nutrients, and waste products that can affect local marine life. So if you're putting in extra nutrients into a marine situation, you can get algae blooms and things like that that do affect the um, delicate balance of that ecosystem. But while it might seem like this is a new trend, it turns out that fish farming goes back to ancient times. Now, we know that the Romans had fish farms with much of the northern Adriatic Sea uh, potentially having been devoted to producing fish and fish sauce. Um, so there's a particular kind of fish sauce uh, that was very much um, sort of basic to much of Roman cooking. Um, it's kind of a Worcestershire sauce uh, turned up to 11. And um, <laughs> and so it was a very important part of the Roman diet. So a lot of it had to be produced. And so ready access to salt, fresh water, and fish uh, made that area particularly ideal for Piscinae or Viveria. Now, wealthy Assyrian and Romans even kept home vivariums where they would hold fish and crustaceans for consumption. So basically, they would have their own kind of uh, pools in their villas, and they would just be able to have their uh, chef go and pick uh, the fish out of their pool and be able to have fresh fish that way. However, we know that others had farmed fish even much earlier. Uh, 
Egyptian tomb paintings from 1500 BCE show Nile tilapia being raised in aquaculture. And ancient writers in China describe carp being raised in flooded rice fields around 1100 BCE. But Tusaneo Nakajima of the Lake Biwa Museum in Japan and his colleagues suspect that it might have started even earlier than that. Given that rice paddy fields date back to the 5th millennium BCE in China, it might be expected that carp aquaculture has a similar antiquity, wrote Nakajima and his colleagues. Now, one of the problems with confirming this is that aquaculture often doesn't leave archaeological signs that can positively identify sites as having hosted fish farming. If you have a rice paddy, it's really hard to tell if that rice paddy was also used for fish farming because all you do is you put the fish into the rice paddy. Um, Not a whole lot of uh, archaeological evidence is going to be left there. Um, And so the researchers actually came up with a quite clever way to look for these signs in another way. The researchers suggest that looking at the size of the fish could be a clue as to whether they were wild caught or farmed. And so several archaeological sites from China and Japan, which date from 6,000 to 5,000 years ago, contain Paleolithic hunter-gatherer middens. These are trash heaps that contain bones and bones of carp. So plotting the size of the fish represented by these bones allowed them to find a bell curve with the peak at just under a foot in length. This corresponds nicely with the curve of wild caught fish peaking with catches during the spawning season. During later times, when fish began to be caught, the curve changed. People from both countries would catch carp during the spawning season and enclose them in marshy areas or ponds. The next fall, after the captive carp had spawned, the areas were drained to harvest the fish. Because this population included juveniles, the curve now had two peaks, one for adult fish of around a foot and one for juveniles at around four inches. They hypothesized that if they could find an archaeological site with this particular kind of curve from an earlier period, it would be highly suggestive that aquaculture had already started. And so they found just such a curve at a site called Asahi in Japan. And this is a site from around 400 BCE, a time when historical records confirm that carp were being farmed in the area. And so they then found a site in China called Jiahu in what is now Henan province. And so there they found a similar curve. People would have inhabited the area between 7,000 and 5,700 BCE. And this was a center for cultural and technological advancement. The area was one of the first to see wine made from fermented honey and rice. It has the oldest known musical instruments, carved bone flutes. 
and bone and tortoiseshell artifacts show that the people of Jiahu had a carved set of symbols, which might represent one of the earliest known predecessors of writing. Based on archaeological remains, researchers believe that the people of the area would have farmed rice and domesticated pigs, and that they had a moat around the settlement showing that they had the technological know-how to dig channels and ponds. In the oldest layers of the settlement, carp bones fall into the wild-caught curve. But beginning in around 6200 BCE, they begin to have the two-peak signature characteristic of Asahi. Even more suggestive is the fact that the carp remains found found the carp remains found, excuse me, highly favor the common carp over the Crucian carp. Now, the common common carp <laughs> might seem a perfect choice for being the most abundant, obviously being called the common carp, but they're actually harder to catch. They swim away from shore once their spawning season is finished, whereas the Crucian carp tends to actually stick around, making that easier to catch. But the researchers found that 75% of the bones came from the common carp. This seems to indicate a cultural preference for common carp, even though these would not have been the most abundant, wrote Nakajima and his colleagues, which, of course, suggests that it might have led to the innovation of farming these fish. The people of Jiahu would have most likely farmed rice in dry fields rather than flooded paddies. Um, and some places still do that. Um, some places in Thailand still grow their um, rice in uh, dry fields. Now, they most likely farmed the fish by digging channels and enclosing parts of their actual marshy spawning grounds. And so as time went on, carp farming became more sophisticated. With an ancient guide to aquaculture by Yang Yu Jing, written around 460 BCE, uh, which details that switch to rice paddies. Now, researchers know that rice paddies began to be created around, again, 5000 BCE. And so this might have been when carp aquaculture really became more widespread and started to be more intensive. And so that is really cool. And, um, yeah, I think it's really excellent. And it's another one of those great sort of things where, you know, people often probably think, oh, you know, this is a new technology that we've just, uh, developed and that we're doing all these great new things. And often it turns out that, nope, somebody has been doing that for, uh, thousands and thousands of years. And, um, you know, it all goes back to, that's been a theme a lot lately, um, which, you know, I don't want to draw too many parallels to uh, today itself, but um, I think that there has been a lot of uh, par a lot of a theme of sort of, you know, things were discovered and then lost uh, due to various kinds of uh, unfortunate uh, circumstance, war, and um, other forces that destroy things that people have figured out how to do. And so now we think, oh, we've created this amazing new thing. And it turns out that nope, somebody did that many, 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 many years ago, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Um, 
And so we talked about uh, the Indus Valley people, for instance, recently, and their cities were incredibly sophisticated. And that is from a really long uh, time in the past. And there's just so many things that we think are so modern and they're just not. <laughs> All right. So let us now move on to another uh, geology story. So uh, we are going to wrap up tonight with the discovery of yet another never before found mineral. Now, last time the mineral came from a meteorite, but this time it comes from a South African diamond. The single grain was found in a diamond extracted from the Kofifontein pipe. And so this is basically a mine that was once a lava pipe um, because that's kind of how we get diamonds is that they're formed very far down and then they are actually ejected by volcanoes um, or pushed up with volcanic magma and they end up at the surface due to volcanic forces. And so the mine is filled with dark igneous rock studded with diamonds. And of course, we can always remember to talk about how diamonds are not nearly as precious as people make them out to be, and that it's just a lie by the diamond cartel. Um, but anyways, <laughs> the new mineral uh, was forged hundreds of miles below the Earth's surface in the mantle, and it may reveal unusual chemical reactions happening in this, frankly, still kind of poorly understood region. The dark green opaque mineral they believe was created around 105 miles below the surface and has been named Goldschmidtite in honor of Victor Moritz Goldschmidt and was described in a recent issue of the journal American Mineralogist. Researchers often rely on the small inclusions in diamonds to give them glimpses of materials and processes that are happening deeper in the mantle, which is around 1,800 miles thick. Um, it's very large, and it's really hard to tell what's going on in the middle of it. And so this inclusion turns out to be, well, weird. Goldschmidtite has high concentrations of neo niobium, potassium, and the rare earth element lanthanum and cerium, whereas the rest of the mantle is dominated by other elements such as magnesium and iron, said study co-author Nicole Meyer, a doctoral student at the University of Alberta in Canada. And so potassium and niobium are the most abundant elements showing that the mineral was actually created from a host of elements that are less common in the Earth's mantle. Goldschmidtite is highly unusual for an inclusion captured by diamond and gives us a snapshot of fluid processes that affect the deep roots of continents during diamond formation, mantle geochemist Graham Pearson, uh, Meyer's co-supervisor, said in a statement. And so the mineral will now be housed in the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. I will not be uh, doing that tonight. So um, <laughs> I will have to leave you to the usual suspects. All right, have a great night. 
Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.